Good afternoon and welcome. We're so pleased that you're here. I'm Carla Hayden, um, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we're very excited that you're here with us on this very special day. This afternoon, we are very honored to have as our speaker, Dr. Barry Black, chaplain of the United States Senate. I think that deserves a hand of applause. The Pratt Library's commemorative lecture is one of the ways that the library makes sure that the legacy and the message of Dr. King remains alive. And especially during these challenging times, Dr. King's message of hope is very important. And what's, when we think about the recent events in Haiti, it's even more important. As a resource and information hub for the city of Baltimore, we feel that it's the Pratt's responsibility to join others to continue Dr. King's legacy. And now, before we start today's lecture, I'd like to encourage all of you, if you get a chance, to pick up a copy of the Pratt's Newsletter of Events, Compass, and also you can reach it online, prattlibrary.org. And we have some special programs coming next Sunday at 2 p.m. We will have the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's discussing her book, Renegade for Peace and Justice. And on Saturday, February 6th, is the Pratt Library's annual Book Lovers Breakfast at the Marriott Waterfront Hotel, featuring best-selling author and star of TV's CSI New York, Hill Harper. And if you haven't registered, please do, because we expect a great turnout. We also will have, on Sunday, February 28th, as part of our Eddie and Sylvia Brown lecture series, award-winning author Gerald Walker, who will be here to discuss copies of his book, Street Shadows. Now today, it is a welcome back to Baltimore for Dr. Black. In June of 2003, Rear Admiral Barry Black was elected the 62nd Chaplain of the United States Senate. And prior to going to Capitol Hill, Chaplain Black served in the United States Navy for more than 27 years, ending his career as the Chief of Navy Chaplains. As a native of Baltimore, he is an alumnus of Oakwood College, Andrews University, North Carolina Central University, Eastern Baptist Seminary, the Salve Regina University, Salve Regina University, and the United States International University. He holds a doctorate in ministry and a PhD in psychology and has received numerous awards and service medals. He is the author of From the Hood to the Hill, a story of overcoming that will be available right outside here and also at the reception that we invite you to. <laughs> <laughs> then we have plenty of copies and a reception that will be on the second floor in the poll room where you can also talk to Dr. Black as well. So please welcome to Baltimore and the Pratt Library, Dr. Barry Black. Thank you so much for that generous introduction. I feel right at home at the Ena Pratt Library. I uh, grew up in two places primarily, Division Street, many of you may know where Division Street is, and there is an Ena Pratt Library on North Avenue in Pennsylvania. Uh, we did not have air conditioning in our home, and so I spent uh, many summer days in the Ena Pratt Free Library, I might add. Uh, just reading, and I fell in love with biographies, and I literally read them indiscriminately. I read uh, the biography of Louis Pasteur and Luther Burbank, and uh, I actually read the uh, uh, biography of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and they became heroes of mine before I realized the Union, you know, <laughs> you know maybe you want to get on the other side, you know. <laughs> but it was a wonderful experience to have these books available uh, to uh, young people in the inner city. Uh, now, I'll get my commercial out of the way. I wrote From the Hood to the Hill uh, when a friend of mine by the name of Claire Rock uh, challenged me. She said, Barry, too many of our uh, African-American leaders take their secrets to their grave. 
She said, we are an oral people, but we need to begin to write down success secrets, the shortcuts to achievement that you have learned. And so uh, I said, I don't have time to write. She said, how often are you on a plane? I said, about once a week. So she made me promise to record uh, what I have learned about upward mobility. She said, you're the only African-American admiral in the history of the uh, United States Navy Chaplain Corps, and you're the only African-American chaplain of the Senate, and they've had chaplains since 1789. Certainly, you have something to say. And so uh, each time I got on the plane, I pulled out my trusted laptop and started uh, typing away. And in six months, uh, there was a, a birth. Uh, from the Hood to the Hill. It's a $24 book, but uh, the Ena Pratt free library discount, uh, I will be uh, selling them for $20, and I hope that you will enjoy reading it. Now, I want to talk about making the dream a reality, because I'm old enough to have actually heard Martin Luther King speak. I remember sitting in uh, an audience and listening to uh, this great man, this diminutive preacher, speak. Uh, I feel sometimes a little like Forrest Gump because uh, I grew up in Baltimore, but I went to college in Alabama in the 60s when the Civil Rights Movement was really taking off. And that is where I heard Martin Luther King Jr. and was privileged to participate in the desegregation of lunch counters in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, so when I talk about making the dream a reality, I am talking about an individual who had a substantive impact upon my life and upon the lives of so many. Uh, Nelson Mandela has often talked about the influence of the civil rights movement and Martin King on the liberation of South Africans uh, uh, from the yoke of apartheid. And so uh, we honor a great American, and so many people talk about remember, celebrate, act, but I would challenge you to make his dream a reality. Martin was a 20th century apostle of nonviolence who actually helped to trigger a second American revolution. It was a revolution that uh, was desperately needed because there was a chasm between the eloquent language of our socio-political documents and the way we lived our lives. When Jefferson said, all men are created equal, uh, he did not mean women. And he certainly did not mean ethnic minorities, even if they were male. And so we were a long way from realizing the American dream. In fact, an objective study of our history forces us to admit that many of our framers were themselves compromised personalities. And so we went through a horrific chapter in our history, uh, the Civil War, or uh, as the uh, people in Alabama would say, the war between the states. And, <laughs> and uh, we lost hundreds of thousands of Americans. And the tragedy is that Americans were killing Americans. The tragedy is that families were separated by this horrible war. The tragedy is that there were those who were trained at West Point and, and one would go to the Union and the other would go to the Confederacy. There were those who were trained at the Naval Academy and one would go to the Union and the other to the Confederacy. Siblings would go in opposite directions. In fact, uh, the famous Hatfield and McCoy feud uh, uh, came about because uh, one of the McCoys uh, they were in Kentucky uh, and West Virginia, and he joined the Union Army instead of the Confederacy. And that 
was the trigger for that famous feud where uh, between 1880 and 1891, some 12 members of those families were killed by one another because of a feud over uh, that uh, unpleasantness that occurred during the Civil War. And so uh, we needed someone to help us remember what America really stands for. After Lincoln was assassinated, of course, Johnson came in and uh, things kind of fell apart. Um, the Ku Klux Klan emerged, Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court decision that institutionalized separate but equal came about. And it was not until uh, probably uh, the late 1940s that we really started doing something about uh, civil rights when Harry Truman desegregated the armed forces. It is interesting that the military actually contributed tremendously to uh, civil rights. It was uh, people dying together. And there's a marvelous movie, Glory, that talks about the uh, Massachusetts regiment, uh, regiment. But people dying together where uh, uh, there was a bonding that occurred and a realization that we need to do more uh, in the area of civil rights. And the military was a leader in uh, that area. And, and so Martin came along in the 1950s. He got a PhD uh, from Boston University. He had all kinds of prestigious job offers. But instead of taking those prestigious job offers, he returned to the South and pastored Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. It is, it is still a small church. So he went back to a small church. And he only became the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association because the big preachers in town couldn't make up their minds which one of the big boys would get uh, the assignment. And so they said, let the, let the kid, let the young fella take it. And his first... Uh, uh, speech, they knew they had made a mistake because <laughs> the young fellow was ready. And that was when, you can still hear it on CD, where he said, if we are wrong, then the Constitution is wrong. If we are wrong, then God Almighty is wrong. And they looked at one another and said, ooh, this boy is ready. Uh, and so it was Martin who uh, was the inspiration and the energy behind the Montgomery Improvement Association, which desegregated uh, the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And I have been on those buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, and so uh, uh, we, we celebrate uh, in January each year with a national holiday an individual who really helped America realize uh, uh, its full potential uh, and actually challenged us with his dream to continue to strive as a nation and as a people to maximize our possibilities. Some of you may know a dear friend of mine. He is a gospel singer by the name of Wentley Phipps. Anyone here ever heard of a guy named Wentley Phipps? Well, Wentley uh, is a dear friend, and he used to live in Washington, D.C. He is now uh, in Vero Beach, Florida. Wentley uh, stood with his seven-year-old son at an inauguration of Ronald Reagan. And Reagan, the great communicator, gave a wonderful uh, inaugural address. And Wentley uh, was just telling me this story, he turned to his seven-year-old son and he said, son, see that? That was a wonderful speech. One day, you can grow up to become president of the United States. And Wentley said his son's response startled him because Wentley II had grown up in a comfortable uh, upper-middle-class home by African-American standards. He had not been exposed to the pathology of discrimination, but his son said, no, Dad, I can't grow up to become president of the United States. You have to be white to become president of the United States. And Wentley said, 
He didn't make a response, but he said he was just mortified that his son, whom he thought was protected from the challenges of racial discrimination, had somehow come to the conclusion that you had to be white to become president of the United States. Well, he told me this story because my office in the Capitol overlooks the mall. You can sit at my desk and watch the inauguration. You don't even have to go out in the cold. Uh, when I when I dated my wife, uh, it was for me love at first sight. Uh, but I had to exorcise some demons to get her to see the advantages of being with me on a permanent basis. In the name of you know one of those deals. Um, and I, I, I deal with it in a chapter in my book uh, where I, I talk about our, our courtship. And, and, but, you know, Brenda is this, uh, this amazing uh, individual who was at, by the way, she was at the March on Washington. Okay? And uh, it's interesting because she came all the way from New Bern, North Carolina to be there, and I was in Baltimore and didn't even go. So, you know, so much for, you know, a, a late bloomer. But the but 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 the point is, uh, I I I I sat with her and watched the inauguration. And Wintley came and he spoke to me later because he had seen the inauguration of President Obama. And he said, I made it a I, I, I made certain that I stood in the same spot where we stood when Reagan gave his address. And as we listened to President Barack Obama, at the end of his speech, Wintley said. I turned to my now 30-something son and said to him, See, son, I told you, when you grow up, you could become president of the United States of America. We owe the fact that we can celebrate uh, this, uh, this triumph of Jeffersonian democracy, regardless of what side of the aisle you may be on. It is still a triumph of Jeffersonian democracy uh, that so soon after (laughs) the march on Washington, we have an African-American president. Quite frankly, I did not expect in my lifetime (laughs) to ever see that happen. And we owe that to a drum major for justice, a drum major for peace, a drum major for righteousness, by the name of Martin Luther King, Jr. Now, when we think about Martin's dream, we often think about it, I believe, in too simplistic a way. And if you get a chance, you need to read the writings of this amazing man. He wrote quite a bit. He died at the age of 39, but he accomplished more in those 39 years than most people accomplish in two or three lifetimes. It was absolutely amazing. He won over 300 significant awards. This brother even had a Grammy. Can, I mean, a, 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 yeah, won a Grammy Award. Can you believe that? You know, for, for a spoken narration. He uh, posthumously received the Congressional Gold Medal, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Of course, the youngest uh, at the time to win the Nobel Peace Prize. So an amazing uh, record of accomplishments. And here was a man who, though he died at a very early age, he's, he wrote books. Just a tremendous contribution to the greatness of this nation. His dream is not just about getting a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. His dream is not just about ethnic minorities being able to go into motels and to go into hotels. Martin's dream is about the nation maximizing its possibilities and its citizens becoming all that they can be because of the basic rights that are neither derived from nor conferred by the state but are God-given. And that was what Martin was about. So I challenge each of us as we celebrate his memory to make his dream a reality. And how can we do that? I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) First of all, we should make Martin's dream a reality by striving for excellence. 
America used to be number one. Made in America used to be something you were proud of. GM used to be the leading automotive uh, manufacturer. Now Toyota is the leader. I was upset as I was driving into the Capitol when I heard on the WTOP, the news station, when they were saying, Toyota is the leader. And I'm saying, why don't Americans buy American cars? And then I looked down at my steering wheel and saw Mercedes-Benz and realized, oh, oops, oops, you know. So, so we, we need to strive for excellence. There used to be a time when we led in academic scores and the, and the scores of American students were out front, at least in the top two or three, in every important area, no longer so. Remembering the dream of Martin Luther King should remind us as individuals and as a nation to strive for excellence. He said on one occasion, whatever job you do, do it so well that the living the dead or the unborn couldn't do it better. He said on another occasion, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go out and sweep streets like Michelangelo carved marble, sweep streets like Raphael painted pictures, sweep streets like Beethoven composed music and like Shakespeare wrote poetry, sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his or her job well. Martin was fond of quoting the poet Douglas Malloch, who said, if you can't be a pine on the top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of a reel. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. For it isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. And Martin King demonstrated by his striving for excellence, his myriad accomplishments, that we should settle for no less as a people and as a nation. We should constantly be challenging ourselves to do better and to cry out, yes, we can. Make that dream a reality by striving for excellence. Second, if you're going to make the dream of Martin King uh, a reality, he would challenge you to remain optimistic. It is very, very easy to become down on ourselves. It is very, very easy to talk about how we are no longer what we should be. But one of the ways Martin affected my life was with his unstoppable optimism. When I first encountered Martin King, I was very pessimistic about race relations in America. Although I grew up in southwest Baltimore, in, in, in a public housing project in Cherry Hill uh, for a significant part of my life, I did not actually shake hands with a white person until I was 16 years old. And I'm not talking about a third world country. I'm talking about Baltimore, Maryland, living on Division Street for a significant time, living in Cherry Hill for a significant time. I did not actually shake hands with a white person until I was 16 years old. I didn't shake hands with the second white person until I was 21. Only in America. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. And yet, pessimistic. I re remember I was in college when the Kerner report came out, that uh, Kerner Commission report, uh, that Lyndon Johnson uh, commission. And, uh, and they said, we live in two Americas, one black and one white. And I thought to myself, because at that time when the report came out, I had only met, actually, I, I had shaken hands with one white person, and that was when I shook hands with the second-place winner of an oratorical contest. Modesty will not permit me to tell you who won the first prize in the contest, but that was the first time that it happened, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and I was the only brother in the contest, by the way, but the point is... 
the Kerner report was right. But then this diminutive preacher showed up on our campus and he said to the student body, we shall overcome. And I still remember the optimism of his words. He said, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We shall overcome, he said, because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. We shall overcome, he said, because the Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow. And then he said to the student body, let us arise from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. We were so energized and mesmerized by the lyrical power of this diminutive preacher that we left the campus and went downtown to Walgreen and to the little stores and the lunch counters and put our bodies on the line in a style of struggle that took nerve and discipline. Make no mistake about it, nonviolent direct action takes far more courage than having a 45 caliber pistol in your hand. And it was the ineluctable optimism of Martin King that gave us a dream, that enabled us to help make the American dream, uh, to move in the direction of making the American dream a reality. So if you're going to make that dream a reality, not just a day off when uh, the third Monday in January roll, uh, rolls around, let it be a time when you remind yourself to strive for excellence. What kind of, of courses are you taking? We're in a library. This is one of the great libraries. I used to come, you know, I used to jog down to this library. You know, and it was it, it seemed much bigger then for some reason. But but what 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 a wonderful treasure trove of learning right here. There are all kinds of courses that you can take. Someone says, Why in the world do you have three master's degrees and two doctorates? Well, Every time I saw a weakness in my life, I started taking classes to try to bolster the weakness. And I had quite a few weaknesses. So, so always be trying to take it to the next level. Maintain your spirit of optimism. No matter what the naysayers say about this nation, you must never forget that if you do enough traveling, when you come back to this country, this is still, in my opinion, the greatest nation on earth. In fact, in my 27 years of naval service, I joined when I was only five years old. In my 27, <laughs> not quite, in my 27 years of naval service, I've been on every continent, Asia, Africa, North America, South America, Europe, Australia, even Antarctica, which is an amazing place to see. But every time I return to America, and I've been to Rome over 20 times, I've been to Paris at least 15 times, every time I land at BWI or Dulles or Reagan National, I feel like getting on my knees and kissing the ground. This is still, in my opinion, one of the greatest nations on earth. Maintain your optimism about this experiment we call democracy. But there's a third thing that we must do if we to, to make the dream a reality, and that is to live a life of service. To live a life of service. Martin said, those who haven't found something worth dying for are not fit to live. One of the reasons why we face so many challenges with the terrorist is because you are dealing with what Eric Hoffa called true believers when you're dealing with terrorists. When you're dealing with terrorists, you're dealing with folk who are willing to die for their belief, regardless of how 
bizarre or idiosyncratic. You may think it is. They are willing to die for what they believe. We must stop being so selfish and narcissistic and start reaching out to others and living a life of service. Critically important as a nation. We must be willing to sacrifice. I am so happy with what I see with the response to the Haitian, uh, this horrible crisis, and we need to do more. Live to serve. That is what life is all about. In his last sermon, preached at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, Martin talked about what he wanted said at his funeral. And he said, every now and then I guess we all stop and think realistically about that day when we will be victimized by what is life's final common denominator. That's something we call death. We all think about it, he said, and every now and then I think about my own death and I think about my own funeral and I don't want to think about it. I don't think about it in a morbid sense. And every now and then I ask myself the question, what it is that I would want said, and I leave the word with you this morning, he said. If any of you are around when it comes my time to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell him not to talk too long. Tell him not to mention that I've won a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell him not to mention where I went to school because I want somebody to be able to say in that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. His life was focused on serving. And so a few weeks later, he went to Memphis for garbage workers. And I lived in Memphis for, for a year. And so I know Memphis very well. I, I, I lived in Memphis just before the assassination of Martin King. And Martin came to Memphis to help the garbage workers because service involves often sacrifice. Those who haven't found something worth dying for are not fit to live. And in his last speech, he said, I left Atlanta this morning on the plane. There were six of us. As we boarded the plane, the pilot announced over the public address, ladies and gentlemen, we're sorry for the delay. But you see, we have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. aboard on the plane. And to make sure that nothing will go wrong on the plane, we've had all of the baggage checked, and we've had the plane guarded all night long. He continued, when we got to Memphis, they talked about the threats. They say the threats that were out about what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And like a good Baptist preacher who has to stretch out his syllables, he said, and I've seen the promised land. <laughs> I may not get there with you, but I want you to know that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so he concluded, I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Martin King lived to serve. And so, as we celebrate his memory, as we remember and celebrate and act, let's not be so simplistic about his dream that we forget the nuances. And I've just touched on 
uh, three of them, but there are about eight or nine others that I can touch on. This embracing of nonviolence is still critically important. There are deep-seated global challenges that can be ameliorated realistically only through nonviolent direct action. And just because you have the biggest gun, it doesn't mean that you should use it. We need to know his nuanced dream. And so I challenge you, strive for excellence. Make this nation all that it can be. I challenge you, I challenge you to stay optimistic. I challenge you to live to serve. And if you will do this, the words of Tennyson's Ulysses will become true in our lives, tis not too late to seek a newer world, to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until we die. It may be that the gulf shall wash us down. It may be we shall reach the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. Though we are not now that strength which in olden days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Thank you very much. Dr. Blackwood, would you like to um, entertain any questions? Yeah. We have time yeah, for a yeah, few yeah. questions. Uh, we have a microphone right here if you'd like okay. to ask a question or two before we go down. Yeah, some of you may have some questions about my job in the Senate or anything about my life. I'd be more than happy to uh, open myself to your questions. Okay, yes. Well, I think for many... Alabamians, the Civil War, is what some even call that recent unpleasantness. So, uh, uh, so um, you know, I, I, I just think it's, it's uh, I guess, a, gentle, a more gentle way of, uh, uh, for some, at least uh, they think of, of talking about the Civil War. It, regardless of what you call it, in my opinion, it is the most tragic chapter in American history. First of all, I'd like to thank you very much for the talk. I enjoyed it immensely. And my question is, what is an average day like in the life of, of the chaplain of the U.S. Senate? Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Um, the chaplain of the Senate pastors a congregation of 7,000 people. Uh, so my responsibility is not just to the 100 senators and the members of their families, but to the 7,000 other people who make up the Senate side of Capitol Hill. Uh, I have an advantage that most pastors don't have in that I actually uh, do my pastoral visitation with my members in their workplaces. So that's wonderful, and there's a bonding that happens because of that. I conduct five Bible studies a week, personally. Uh, one is just for the senators, one for the spouses of the senators, one for the chiefs of staff and two plenary Bible studies. We get, at my Friday Bible study, we average about 150, um, sometimes as many as 200 people will come out to, to that study. I do a spiritual mentoring class where I take 10 people uh, through a 10-week training on mastering the spiritual disciplines. Uh, I officiate at weddings and funerals. I do a wide variety of counseling. I do hospital visitation. I advise senators on the ethical dimensions of the issues that they are debating in the chamber. Uh, I uh, participate in seasonal observances. I facilitate for non-Christians on Capitol Hill. Uh, I bring in rabbis for Torah studies. I bring in imams during the uh, holy days of, uh, of Muslim staffers. Uh, so my training in the military uh, 
of providing ministry in a pluralistic setting of religious diversity was was actually great preparation for doing a similar ministry on Capitol Hill. But the short answer is I pastor uh, a congregation of 7,000 people. It is also an open-ended appointment, by the way, and that is why uh, I'm staying hydrated and eating well uh, because, uh, you know, you can stay there for as long as you are inhaling and exhaling, barring, of course, felonious conduct. Hey, one question, Dr. Black. I've heard that um, it, great people are made by the many challenges that come their way. I wondered if you could share some challenges that you believe have shaped you to make you the person that you are. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is my sister, Iris Odema. Thank you, sis, for asking, asking that question. Um, I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely correct that we are shaped by our challenges and our, and our hardships. Um, I think one of the, the first challenges that I had was uh, growing up when you really didn't have enough to eat. Uh, the primary meal that I got, fortunately, my mom had us matriculating in Christian schools from grade one all the way through college, so that was a wonderful thing. And at the Christian school, there at Baltimore Junior Academy, Madison Avenue and uh, Whitelock, um, at that school, uh, which Iris teaches at now, uh, still teaches at Baltimore Junior Academy, uh, uh, at 12 o'clock, you had a wonderful meal, and we had a, a lady, Mrs. Mamie Jamison, girlfriend could throw down some food. And so that was, a, that was the one primary nourishing meal that we had. We used to get the welfare cheese. Uh, by the way, some of the best grilled cheese sandwiches you will ever make, at that welfare cheese. In fact, I wish they actually sold that government cheese, because, you know, best mac and cheese you'll ever have is that government cheese, you know. But I, I was so accustomed to the government uh, milk that I did not drink uh, whole milk until I went off to school at Pine Forge Academy in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. I went to a boarding high school, and, uh, and, uh, and, and that's where I first uh, drank whole milk. And you would have thought I was drinking liquor. <coughs> what is this stuff? This is strong stuff here. But anyhow, so that, that, was, that was a challenge. To grow up in the toxic pathology of... Uh, of an urban inner city is 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 a is a challenge. Uh, to have rats, uh, you know, and that that is a challenge. I was also uh, my family evicted three times. So to come home from school and to see all of your furniture out on the street, and quite frankly, the embarrassment is not from the fact that you're evicted. The embarrassment is that now all the neighbors see just how little you actually have. You know, they were thinking, my God, I knew they were poor, but God have mercy, is that it? Uh, so that, that was a challenge. When I was a teenager, my mom, who believed in a vigorous work ethic, my mother, uh, you know, she believed, uh, the Apostle Paul has a verse, that if you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, my mother believed in a vigorous work ethic, and we would, we would go to downtown Baltimore and get on a bus before the sun came up, ride to Pennsylvania and pick beans with migrant workers. You know, I learned Spanish from what Padre Nuestro que estás en los cielos, working in the, in, the, in the bean fields, two cents a pound. But it was great training, and when I went off to high school, a boarding school in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, uh, they had a bean field, and I was picking so many beans, and they were, they were, they were giving you 10 cents a pound. They did not realize, I thought I had, walked into Fort Knox, and e e eventually they put me on a flat rate. They this boy, this boy's going to bankrupt the school with the beans that he's picking. I was making $20 a day when it was two cents a pound. But that gave me a work ethic. I used to be jealous of students when I would be on the campus, the, the students who had automobiles, the students who had families that could pay their tuition, and I was walking around campus picking up paper. And when you want to be popular with the girls, you know, known as the janitor is not exactly going to, you know, get your brownie points. But it, 
gave me a work ethic that enabled me to start very junior as in the Navy and, uh, and to retire a two-star admiral and the only African-American to ever even make one star, let alone two. Uh, so, uh, so, so the challenges, the challenges uh, really make, uh, make, the, uh, make the difference. So thank, thank you. you for that. And we have one last question. Pardon me, Dr. Black? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I am not a native to Baltimore, but I do know of Division Avenue and um, Cherry Hill to be some mm -hmm. pretty rough areas. Um, personally, in my volunteer life, which is a second job that I hold as a volunteer person, I work with children, um, children whose parents, whose mothers in particular, are incarcerated here mm -hmm. in um, MCIW. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I noticed in your speech you talked about three elements of I was a student of success and living a prosperous life, a comfortable life. How do you profess to encourage young disadvantaged persons who can't necessarily see themselves outside of their circumstances to live a life of excellence, to live a life of optimism, and to live a life of service? Well, um, I think if we, would, if we would live to serve and truly become concerned about um, the lost, the lonely, and the least in our society and in our world, we would make a difference. Um, one of the things that kept me from the gangs in Baltimore, and when I was coming out, we had the Diamonds. Some of you may remember that. I mean, we had some gangs. And the guys in my neighborhood were basically saying, I mean, there was no father in my home. So the guys were saying, hey, you want to get paid? You know, and, and that meant going out, engaging in deviancy, robbing people, burglarizing in order to get money. There was a lady uh, near North Avenue on Division Street called a Mrs. Ada Thornton, who, you know, was probably on public assistance as well, who said, Barry, I want you to come and wash my steps, you know, the white steps on Division Street. Well, she said that not because she needed me to wash her steps, but because she wanted to have a reason to give me a few quarters to take away the monetary motivation of the gangs. And I would get a bucket of water, and I don't know if they still have it today, but a can of Ajax, some of you may remember that, and my little scrub brush, and I would go and I would do her steps, and, uh, and Mrs. Thornton would give me 50 cents, which was serious money in those days. Let me, let me help you understand what 50 cents meant in, in that ancient far-off day. You could buy gas for 17 cents a gallon, okay? You could get the big Snicker bar. I'm not talking about the little Snicker bar. You could get the big Snicker bar for a nickel, okay? The huge baby roof for a nickel. So 50 cent was serious money. There was another lady, Mrs. Ethel Cox, on Utah Street. And she was kind of well-to-do, African-American, saw potential in me, who said, son, I want you to come and clean my house uh, each weekend. Now, at that time, domestics were only making $6 a day. I would go, she had a huge house, four stories, and I would clean it. And I was, again, work ethic. She would give me $10 which my mother confiscated most of it. But anyway, she would give me, she would give me $10 for doing that. Okay, so re living to serve, reaching out, seeing, uh, seeing ourselves as part of an extended family, and finding little ways to encourage folks. Just my having a little bit of change in my pocket was enough to, to keep me out of the gangs. And I actually, there was a time, I actually had an experience when I just turned in, in my teens where Two of my running buddies wanted me to go along with them to get back at somebody, and I did not go along with them, and they ended up killing someone, and both of them got life in prison, okay? Now, critical point, I really believe that somehow we must find a way to develop the spiritual, the ethical, and the moral fitness of our young people, and we must not simply tolerate this lifestyle uh, you know, almost condoning a lifestyle of immorality, okay? And regardless of, you know, the, the spiritual or ethical or philosophical reasons for it, it hurts society and it hurts our nation when we tolerate a subculture of immorality. What my mother did, 
And my mother was a saint. Uh, the, the, uh, she really was. My mama was a saint. Uh, a, a fourth grade education, eventually got her GED, but a, a fourth grade education, the daughter of a South Carolinian, a South Carolina sh sharecropper, migrated to Baltimore in her teens. Uh, and she gave my siblings and me our allowance based upon the scriptures we memorized, five cents a verse. So we became students of the Bible. <laughs> and we searched the Bible for low-hanging fruit, the short verses. Okay, so, you know, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. That was a nickel, okay, you know. You know. Remember Lot's wife, that was a nickel, okay. So we, we searched the Bible for those verses, and she eventually put me on a flat rate because I was breaking the bank there, okay. All right, I don't care how much you mean, right? You're not going to get more than 15 cents, okay. So, but... But what she was doing very skillfully was she knew that if she would get the Bible in us, sacred literature in us, uh, that there was a power. Uh, Hebrews 4 says the word of God is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the dividing asunder of bone and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the human heart. I got a dime for those two verses, okay? There you go. All right, and so she, she did that, and that is what kept me from going along with my, with my running buddies. The morning that I was asked to go along with them, I had memorized Proverbs 1.10. Proverbs was my favorite book of the Bible because the verses are short, little maxim. And Proverbs 1.10 says, my son, if sinners entice you, consent thou not. And on the strength of that verse, I did not go along with them. I later in reading it saw that the contextual setting is all about violence and murder. But I didn't even know that at the time. I was just trying to get a nickel. Okay, So it, we, we got to find a way to get life transforming truth into our young people and ensure that when we develop them, we're not just developing them physically. We've got enough athletes. But we develop harmoniously their spiritual and ethical, physical, mental, and social powers. And we need to do that, not as individuals, but as a village. God bless you.